You are now listening to Well-Fed Women, the show that's been radically changing the way women perceive health, fitness, and their bodies since 2015. I'm your host, Noelle Tarr. Submit your questions to wellfedwomen at gmail.com, and you can keep up with the show on Instagram at wellfedwomen. Hello and welcome back to the Well-Fed Women podcast. This is episode number 467. I'm thrilled you're here. I actually have a fabulous guest on today, a holistic RD. And when I sent out a call for questions, I said, hey, I'm having a holistic RD on. I know you guys have so many questions about nutrition and metabolism and dieting and weight loss without diet culture. You guys flooded me with everything on your mind. I so appreciate you guys showing up and uh, giving us really awesome questions. And I think it really led to a, a really fruitful and insightful discussion. Today, my guest is Kaylee McDevitt. She's a registered dietitian specializing in nutrition for women's health. She owns a virtual private practice where she and her team help their clients reclaim their energy, optimize fertility, and overcome hormone symptoms through personalized nutrition. Having experienced the pitfalls of conventional approach to women's health firsthand, Kaylee is passionate about empowering women to build health from a place of connection to self, to nature, and to community. Her website is kayleerd.com. I also follow her on Instagram. She had a really cool post uh, recently that was said that we're a generation derived of progesterone. And I thought that that was so insightful and such a strong statement because so many women, especially in our our generation, millennial women, are really – we are just a generation deprived of progesterone and mainly because we are a generation of women that has been exposed to an enormous amount of stress – an unprecedented amount of stress. I will stand behind that because of the expectations from all over, from all over. And 2020 was really just, I think, uh, it was this heightened realization for me of what the modern woman is going through. And so it's no question that most of us are struggling with mineral imbalances and hormone imbalances and blood sugar dysregulation and fasting glucose issues and all that kind of stuff. And that's because stress screws everything up, unfortunately. Speaking of stress, if you are not taking magnesium yet, I highly recommend doing so, especially magnesium glycinate glycinate. I will plug mine my own for a second. I'm actually working on a new website, wellminerals.us. It's going to be a nice hub now where I'm trying to put out some blog posts and information about magnesium, about dosages, about how it can interact with women's hormones and stress and all that kind of stuff. So it's not just a place where you can buy the product. It's actually a place where you can have a little bit more resources and you know what's right for you and the dose is just right for you and you know how to tinker. More Chill Magnesium has blown me away at how well it's been working for a lot of you. So many of you have said that it's completely changed your sleep. I even had an incredible story about somebody working on his residency, taking more chill and it totally changing his sleep and actually helping him finally actually fall asleep and stay asleep. So when I hear stories like that, I it gives me all the feels. I've, I'm so humbled by the opportunity and it's something that I'm just so thankful that I get to be able to be a part of your life and provide some resolution for people who are stressed out and dealing with a lot. Because I know firsthand the toll that it takes, and specifically the toll that it takes on your sleep and what lack of sleep does to your life, your mental, emotional, and physical health. And so I'm grateful that I get to help people with their sleep, and I'm grateful that I have it for me to take as well. So if you haven't tried it yet, 
Wellminerals.us, take more chill, or you can take just pure magnesium lysinate glycinate. More chill has a little bit of L-theanine. It's a magical combination, L-theanine and magnesium lysinate glycinate. And always, you can always use the coupon code WELLFED. I Now I'm going to put that on the website so when people go, they can always get the discount code. And make sure that you, if you want to get free shipping, it's it's free shipping orders on $50 or more. So if you want to or add two bottles, you'll get the free shipping. You'll get the 10% off. That's the best deal. Okay, so now let's get to my interview with Kaylee. Welcome, Kaylee, to the Well-Fed Women podcast. I am so happy that you're here, and we're going to get to as many questions as possible. Before we jumped on, I was like, I'm stoked. There are some really, <laughs> there's some questions I have in here, so I'm so thankful that you're here. Oh, I'm so thankful to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so your specialty, you're, you're a registered dietitian. You have a more holistic focus, which I think is really cool. I do feel like maybe 10 years ago when we were like the, the holistic movement kind of like pushed back against RDs and it was like, mm, you're an RD. And so now <laughs> I feel like there's so many really high quality, like just well-versed uh, registered dietitians who take a holistic approach and really understand the foundationals of nutrition, but also how it works holistically with other organs and all that kind of stuff. And um, would love to know from you, I think that you probably are kind of entering the same, we're all in the same generation here, which Mm is what I would consider to be women who are just in the thick of it. Mm -hmm. We're trying to survive. A lot of women are struggling with stress and with stress comes a lot of other issues. It comes hormone imbalances, blood sugar issues, and cortisol and adrenal dysfunction. And so it is no secret that I think women are kind of, in my opinion, dealing with more stress than they ever have before. So with your just vast knowledge and experience, talk to me a little bit about, because I know this is probably what you deal with mostly in, in your practice, but what what's a game plan for women mm-hmm. who are in a stressful season and really need to survive? I mean, like, <laughs> I'm, obviously I want to thrive, but Truth be told, most people are just trying to survive without being taking a hit. Yeah. No, this is like 99.9% of what what we do in our practice. And, you know, we serve millennial women. I think, I think that captures the age range of our our typical clients. So primarily women in like their late 20s to mid 40s. And we all grew up through some really rough diet dogma and body image stuff. I just think what we were exposed to in like the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s set the tone for maybe not having the most resilience from an adrenal perspective by the time we hit this point in life. And then we start adding things like careers and families and just existing as a modern human with access to like all the information in the world in front of our eyeballs all the time. And it created this overwhelming, stressful situation. And that definitely wreaks havoc on hormones, which I'm sure we'll get into that too. But when we think about the fundamentals of surviving a higher stress season and hopefully getting to that point of thriving in it, you know, we have to use what is within our control to create safety in the body. And in the realm of nutrition, that really is eating enough, first and foremost, um, and moving away from those years or decades of really letting external rules dictate how much we're eating because we're trying to manipulate our body in a specific way. So eating enough is a non-negotiable if stress is high, because that's the biggest signal of safety we can give, even if times are crazy. Um, From there, we would look at making sure blood sugar is balanced. 
So above and beyond eating enough, we would start looking at how we were comprising those meals, how frequently we were eating throughout the day, and just really trying to avoid those big dips in blood sugar that would call stress hormones up for us. We would take a big mineral focus. So we would start bringing in intentional minerals. So sodium, potassium, magnesium, and calcium would be the first ones we'd start with because those really influence the flexibility of our nervous system and how we can buffer stress as it comes up. And then we'd start looking at things like sleep, circadian rhythm, and then just getting outside more. Um, I think most of us, I'm sure it's the same for you because we're meeting virtually, but we spend a lot more time on computers than I think humans were supposed to. Yeah, And just simply like seeing the sun, getting outside, if we can get barefoot on the earth or just giving our eyeballs a break from screens can really make a big difference. So those would be like the basic things we'd start with. You know, it's interesting. Minerals, I think, have become more popular recently. And I don't necessarily know why, you know, so it's like breaking down trends and thought processes and all that. But it's the missing piece for so many women because of how like I didn't realize I did not realize the intricate role minerals played in the adrenals. And if you are dealing with chronic stress and adrenal dysfunction, just how quickly that can become imbalanced. You taught you mentioned the nervous system. Can talk to me a little bit about how the nervous system, like how it works and maybe how it responds to stress or what changes yeah. occur because of stress. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, my background was not in the nervous system. I don't even know that this was really mentioned much in my schooling to become a dietitian. It was just only through the years of trying to answer the question why certain clients were really getting better and others weren't when we were doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of led me down some rabbit holes of nervous system work. And, you know, your nervous system is really that internal sensor of safety in your environment and in your body, and always trying to gather information from how we're moving, living, breathing, eating, and functioning, and um, really deciding, are we safe or are we not safe? Can we prioritize certain functions in the body? And can we not? And a common situation for our clients is that we get stuck more in the sympathetic dominant side of the nervous system where we're in that chronic fight or flight, kind of addicted to cortisol and adrenaline would be like a description of me several years ago and the clients that we serve today um, and really struggling to get into that parasympathetic rest and digest where we feel really grounded, where we can heal, where we can prioritize digestion. So we build in actually a separate nervous system program into our client work because we just realized we needed to outsource more support in this realm. Because if we can work on that while we work on the food stuff, we just see such faster results. Um, And, you know, bringing it back to the mineral thing, uh, a high stress state is going to deplete minerals really quickly. That's one of the main things that happens. So if we don't work on stress and nervous system stuff while we work on mineral repletion, we're just kind of chasing our tails with that. It's like a cup with a big hole at the bottom. So how does stress impact our hormones, specifically estrogen and progesterone? You also have said something really interesting, which is we're a generation deprived of Mm -hmm. progesterone. So talk to me a little bit about that (laughs) statement and what you meant there and maybe just how what stress's role is with our with our hormones and progesterone in particular. For sure. Yeah, I think it's a big statement, but I feel really passionate about that. Just having lived that experience myself and then again, serving millennial women. And when we think about sex hormones for women, you know, we really mostly think about estrogen and progesterone. And I think estrogen typically gets more, um, more airtime as like the female hormone, but progesterone is 
that grounding hormone. It balances the proliferative effects of estrogen. It helps us feel more in flow, a little bit more parasympathetic as well. So more on the rest and digest side. And most of the symptoms in the women's health space come from either a a true lack of progesterone or a lack relative to estrogen. So when we think about like symptomatic or irregular cycles or even fertility struggles, it usually comes back to there not being enough progesterone. Mm -hmm. And in order for us to make progesterone at all, we have to ovulate. It only exists if ovulation occurred. And we only ovulate if the body feels safe. So that is like a very consistent theme we'll always come back to. And so if we look at this generation, our generation, and we think about how we've felt throughout our reproductive years, or maybe how the other women in our lives have felt throughout our reproductive years, it is rampant with like irregular cycles, really miserable symptoms that we just think are normal, a lot of birth control use to try to remedy those symptoms, and then a lot of fertility issues now are showing up. And so I think we've had a couple of things happen to us. I think we had lack of nourishment, whether that was subscribing to all the crazy diets of the 90s and early 2000s and body image stuff, or just the lack of nutrients available in food today versus 50 to 100 years ago. And I think it's a complete mismatch between our physiology that's rooted in safety and the way that we live. So we've hinted on that, like inside, in captivity, on screens, social media at our fingertips, that grind culture and kind of saying yes to everything. And then I think the like widespread use of birth control for all symptoms, not just contraception, has been a big hit to progesterone production for our generation too. Yeah. Yeah, I can totally see that. It's so interesting because I, I'm so thankful that I made the changes when I did in my early 20s because if I had continued on with this sort of deprivation mindset, you know, mm-hmm. I was like, what can I do that's more strict? How can I be more strict? And so it was like vegetarianism. And then it was like, oh, I'll do veganism. And then it was like, I got to work out more. So it was always about eating less. And of course, you know, I did lose my period, which meant I wasn't ovulating for a time period. But ultimately, even when I did gain it back, it wasn't, it was never about nourishment. It always was about restriction. Mm -hmm. I'm just so thankful that I got out of that phase earlier in my 20s because it would have set me up for a general, you know, a season deprived of progesterone or just, you know, a a real deep stress that would have really thrown me off. And I think a lot of that course correction that I did early on set me up for hormone balances later on. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that it's ever too late because I think that once you do do that course correction, it can it lays a completely new foundation, which I think most women can absolutely a- obtain, even in their you know late late thirties, early forties. Um, I totally agree. That's a really important thing too. This isn't like a doom and gloom message that we've been robbed of progesterone and that is it. You know, I think the body is always trying to come back into its ideal state. It's always working really hard to do so. And if we can align on the same team, we're going to see success. And that goes back to what you said about deprivation versus nourishment and the decisions we make around food and movement and the way we live. If we filter that through the lens of how can I align on the same team and support my body versus trying to manipulate it, then we green light things like hormone production and create that state of safety. So I think progesterone is available to you, you know, whenever you want to try to increase it. Yeah, I like that. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> Let's um start talking about blood sugar. I want to jump into some of these questions from the community. Uh, this was a big topic. Everybody had a lot of questions about blood sugar, and it's obviously a popular topic right now. I think people are finally connecting the dots between blood sugar dysregulation and overall health, hormone function, insulin sensitivity, all those things. So Megan says, is snacking, even whole foods, good or bad for blood sugar management? How often should I eat per day? And is it better to have bigger meals early in the day? I've heard that and I eat a solid breakfast, but then I'm extremely hungry come lunch and dinner time and portions remain the same size to satisfy my hunger. And I don't know if that means I need more at breakfast. So mm-hmm. let's break it down. Is snacking <laughs> even on whole foods good or bad? Let's start with that one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a fan of snacking. I think the key with this and with nutrition in general and what makes it kind of an annoying field is that it's going to be different for every person and even in every season. Um, So for most of our clients, which again is like millennial females that are typically dealing with some burnout, snacking can be helpful because we're really trying to stay ahead of blood sugar lows and just have nice rolling hills instead of peaks and valleys. So, you know, I think good whole food snacks, positive, but the frequency is a thing that we would discuss too. So generally from a blood sugar perspective, we're thinking, you know, every three to five hours of having some kind of a meal or snack as a basic starting point. And I think, you know, the how often should I eat per day is something that you're going to have to do some trial and error with. And it sounds like from Megan's question, she's really in tune with those hunger and fullness cues. Like she knows that she's getting really ravenous ahead of those meals. And I say ravenous hunger is going to be your clue that more nourishment was needed before that, whether that's a bigger initial meal or some kind of snack, depending on how many hours that's been. Yeah. Is it better to have bigger meals earlier in the day? Mm. So I'm a big fan of a hearty breakfast. The research suggests that if we can get at least 20 to 30 grams of protein at breakfast, we're going to have better blood sugar stability throughout the rest of the day. So I know she mentioned that she has a solid breakfast, but I'd want to break down like, what do we mean by solid? Is it that we feel full after? What are the components of it? And my biggest priority there would be making sure that you're getting, you know, somewhere around 30 grams of protein in that meal for the best chance at blood sugar stability. And also that that breakfast happened within about an hour of waking, that we didn't go several hours before we got that meal. Why? (laughs) This is just, you can pontificate on this. Why is it that there is so much controversy around how many times a day you eat? I like, there's some, some people are so strongly in one camp and it's like, you only need to eat two meals a day or three meals a day. Other people are Mm -hmm. like, Snacks are what you need. Like, what? Why is there yeah. such controversy? Is there like, is there varying <laughs> evidence on this? Because I've never actually looked at the literature, or is it just people being people? Yeah, I think I think we as humans like really like rules. Most of us that end up being interested in the nutrition and health space, we typically like rules and we like to follow them and we like to check boxes and we like to do it perfectly. I was totally guilty of this too. I'm sure that even was part of why I went down this career path initially, just based on where I was at that time. I was like, give me the rules so I can do it perfectly. So that's part of it. I think the other part is that we always want it to be the same for every person. Like our brains want to know, like there is one optimal way to do this. And that's not the case with health stuff. It is going to look different from person to person and season to season. And this is where we have to start building that autonomy muscle a little bit more and and make it okay to experiment. Like try on what this looks like to do a different breakfast. Maybe try on a snack between breakfast and lunch. See what this looks like to do it differently in the afternoon and then trust that that feedback you're getting from your body is is accurate because that's going to be the most accurate for you above and beyond any 
randomized control trial you might find on the internet, your data in real time is going to be the best. Yeah. yeah, I like that. From Sarah, she says, how to get to the bottom of insulin resistance and blood sugar dysregulation. I have blood sugar levels in the pre-diabetic range, specifically my fasting number. I'm at a healthy weight, eat a healthy diet with plenty of fiber, always pair protein with carbs, move daily, manage stress, etc. But my body is just struggling with this. Practitioners I've worked with recommend low-carb or keto. I just can't get behind the idea that restricting carbs is the long-term solution, but I'm not sure what else to do. Mm-hmm. I feel that. This is such a common situation, and I even even dealt with this a little bit personally too, where my fasting blood sugar was higher than I would have liked it to be. And it sounds like that's the main issue for her too. Maybe throughout the rest of the day, it's fine. Or things like her A1C, that would be a bigger overall reflection, maybe look good. In general, I'm not a fan of very low carb or keto for women. Um, I think most of the research we have on that kind of eating is done on men and the physiology is just very different. So we keep coming back to that theme of creating safety in the body and the long-term restriction of carbohydrates. We've just seen mess with hormones eventually and create that reliance on stress hormones. So really we, we've got two options for keeping blood sugar up. We can either eat some carbs and get glucose that way, or we can release stress hormones and release glucose that way. So we would rather run on glucose than cortisol or adrenaline if we want hormone balance. I like that clarity. That's good clarity. Yeah. I'm glad because I know this is a, this is a big topic and I think there's a lot of confusion here, but for women, again, we don't want stress hormone roller coasters. So how can we be gentle on that system? And this is where some confusing stuff happens with blood sugar. If we restrict carbs, you actually can find higher fasting glucose if it's not a fit for you. And the reason being is that we had a big blood sugar dip overnight and we called on stress hormones to raise blood sugar levels for survival. And we tend to have it be higher in the morning. So cortisol should be highest in the morning. That's part of our circadian rhythm and getting us up and running. So if you're noticing that it's just that fasting glucose, I think this is a sign that maybe we're actually not getting quite enough carbs throughout the day. And maybe even specifically right before bed, we could trial some kind of a balanced snack. So usually at least two macronutrients, carbs, proteins, and fats for that bedtime snack and see if we can get ahead of that. I just don't see low-carb or keto being the long-term solution here, rather like the very boring, gentle approach where things are balanced and supported throughout the day. I have a way for you to get free electrolytes. And let me be honest, you are going to love them. Minerals have quite literally changed my life. I take them daily now. A lot of people think that you don't need to take them during the winter because you're not sweating as much. But that's a myth. If you are running around, if you're working out, if you're eating a whole foods diet, and if you're dealing with stress, your body still needs electrolyte support. In fact, I'm still drinking them daily during the winter now. I tend to drink them mid-morning. I get to a point where I start to feel fatigue. And I actually start to feel like I want something, like I'm craving something, whether it's food or sweet, and I don't really feel hungry, that's when I know I need my electrolytes. One of my favorite ways to replace minerals is with Element. I started supplementing with Element after workouts, and it made a huge difference in my energy and the dizziness I used to experience throughout the day. They make grab-and-go electrolyte replacement packs with no sugar, gluten fillers, or artificial ingredients. You just tear open a pack, pour it into your water, and stir. I have now been mixing up half a packet for my kids when they're sick, which has been often, they now say, I don't feel good. I want my element. I also pretty much always have one in my purse because when we are out and about, it's been a long day. We're at a football game. 
I need to pour some Element in my water. Right now, everyone, including new and current customers, can get a free eight-pack of Element with every order. Element comes in boxes of 30. There is free shipping on all orders. And now all orders will get a free eight-pack, which has all the flavors of Element. When you do your order, I recommend doing the Insider Bundle, which gives you three boxes. Then you get one free. Then you get a free eight-pack on top of it. And make sure to check out the new winter flavors, chocolate mint, chocolate raspberry, and chocolate chai, which can be heated up for a warm drink. To get Element, go to drinklmnt.com forward slash wellfed and make sure to use the code wellfed for your free sample eight pack. Again, that's drinklmnt.com forward slash wellfed. I really like that. That's really interesting. What a different perspective than what the typical like health, wellness, fitness industry Mm -hmm. is saying, you know. And once you have that understanding of like, well, how are we accessing blood glucose mm-hmm. in in a carbohydrate deficit or low to no carbohydrates, yeah. then then it makes sense because now yeah. we are not only, you know, why we say, oh, it's stress to the system, but it literally is calling on stress hormones to manage that process. Obviously, there's other nuances involved, but for women in general, specifically women who are already stressed, already mm-hmm. depleted, already, you know, have a cycle and are are trying to manage the day to day, it it can be a cluster. So yeah. Yeah. Cluster indeed. And she's somebody based on her question that is doing like the whole checklist of blood sugar support. Yes. I think definitely is. If that wasn't done, of course we'd have those conversations, but she's doing those things. So I think there actually might not be enough carbs, which feels super counterintuitive, but hopefully also a little liberating. Um, Mm -hmm. again, permission to experiment and see how it impacts you. Yeah, I wonder if Sarah, you've been actually no Sarah. I wonder if you've been like subconsciously trying to reduce or restrict carbohydrates in order to manage manage it, and that's kind of made it worse or mm-hmm. you know led to more issues. So, um, okay, so talk to me about CGMs, mm-hmm. continuous glucose monitors. Hey, Jiller says if I get a CGM, then what? Who <laughs> can help with the results and changes? Yeah. I'd also like to know. I know you're pregnant. How are you? assessing glucose? Are you doing anything like glucose monitors yet or anything like that? Yeah, I haven't yet. But so my husband has type one diabetes. He has since he was nine. So we've got glucometers like all over the house. everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, we've got stuff everywhere. So it's something that I've, uh, I just check in with periodically because I have access to it in the house. Um, So I'm not doing anything specific with that in pregnancy yet. But I, I certainly will as things get a little bit later on just to check in with how that's going. And then specific to her question, CGMs, those are continuous glucose monitors. So they take some of the nuisance out of checking your blood sugar instead of pricking your finger many, many times a day. You've got um, like a wearable device that's reading real-time glucose and sending it to typically an app. And these can be really helpful tools for that experimentation phase we were talking about with Sarah, um, where we can get more data of how this looks across the day, how we're responding to specific meals, how we're responding to different meal timing, and can just be a real body literacy tool. And I wouldn't say that it's the end-all be-all. I think there's still some inaccuracy with CGMs from what I've seen with clients. It's not something that we use all the time in practice, but can just be helpful data for you to understand yourself and your response to food um, in the context of your life and your stress, which influences that. If you notice that a specific food has like something random, you know, like say you're eating potatoes and you have a super, you know, Valley Peak 
Pete kind of responds to it, but rice doesn't do that. Should you not eat potatoes? Like, are we trying to really eliminate these these larger glucose responses? Yeah. So the idea would be to create that more rolling hills type of data throughout the day versus big peaks and and valleys. And so you can either decide that, okay, maybe potatoes are just not my jam for my physiology. And again, it's different from person to person, which is a little maddening, but true. Um, (laughs) Or we can look at how it's prepared, what it's eaten with, or the amount of it that it's eaten. Right. I'm blanking on Rob Wolf's book from many years ago. Maybe it was Wired to Eat. Wired to Eat. Yes, that's it. Yeah. And he does the like carb experiments in there and they're tedious. It's like you're 50 grams of just beans and we're seeing how we respond to that. And like, this is kind of the level of tediousness we get in order to build that list of how this works for you. And I think that level is above and beyond what most people need to do. But if you are data driven and really curious, that's what you would do. You'd say, how did I respond to potatoes? How did I respond to rice? Can I change the portion size? Can I add fat or protein to it? How does that impact the response? And then you'll you'll start to understand, you know, what supports your blood sugar stability the best. If you do this alongside like a friend or a partner or spouse, it's crazy to see how different that is for each person. Yeah, not interested in doing that. I no, me neither. I will not be doing that. <laughs> but you could if you want. <laughs> I'm sitting there trying to think of like, wow, I really have to be on top of like measuring and that. Yeah, so- and- I just want to eat eat whatever my potato. Okay. Yeah. Okay. This is from Anna Maria. She says, how best to support adrenals with the intent to control slash reduce cortisol? High cortisol is another really, I think, more popular topic. People are wondering, what do I do about this? So how do you support your adrenals if you know you have higher cortisol? Yeah. So my first question would be, why is that cortisol high? I think we always want to get to like, what supplement can I take or what can I do with my diet? But there's a reason for that cortisol production in the first place. You know, the body's not malfunctioning. It's responding to stressors and trying to get your attention. So is there something that we need to change in our day-to-day? Do we need to look at sleep? Do we need to look at light exposure? Or is it maybe a blood sugar thing like we've been talking about with, I think, Sarah's question? If we've got big swings in blood sugar, we also have big swings in stress hormones like cortisol too. So one of the first things that we would do if we know that our adrenals need some support is Let's employ consistent eating with carbs, proteins, and fats at those mealtimes so we can keep blood sugar really steady and not have to keep calling on our backup mechanism, which is stress hormones. From there, I'd be thinking about, are we getting enough protein throughout the span of the day to support those adrenals? And then bringing it to the mineral perspective, we really need sodium, potassium, and magnesium, ideally some vitamin C as well, to replenish adrenals that have been working over time. And the reason why minerals come into that conversation is your adrenals don't just make cortisol. They don't just make adrenaline. They also make something called aldosterone that regulates mineral balance and fluid balance in the body. So if we're overproducing cortisol, we're typically also messing with sodium and potassium. I don't know if you've seen this because I feel like it's been having a moment on Instagram, but adrenal cocktails. Yes, of course. Yeah. So the premise of an adrenal cocktail, which is sodium, potassium, and vitamin C in a beverage is that those are nutrients heavily used and depleted by the adrenals during times of stress. So vitamin C is used more by the adrenal glands than any other gland in the body, which is interesting. So repleting vitamin C could be really helpful. And then sodium and potassium for that mineral fluid balance that we discussed. And as much as I always hate when those really trendy things are effective, 
like <laughs> I feel like I'm always late to adopt them because I just feel like they'll pass. Um, adrenal cocktails have been really actually great with our clients and something that I notice a personal benefit from, especially in like a hectic day of a lot of calls or just higher stress yeah. times. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, let's move into dieting and weight loss. Elizabeth says, mm-hmm. what's the best diet for sensitivities without going through all the tests? And if testing is necessary, which ones make sense? So if somebody is dealing with a sensitivity, do you even recommend that they do a test? And how do they figure out maybe what, I mean, I'm sure you yeah. have elimination diet protocols, but what what are kind of your yeah. favorites and what do you do with your clients? Yeah, you know, we used to do a lot of this years ago, whether it was testing or elimination protocols to try to get to the bottom of symptoms. And over the years, we've gotten farther and farther away from that because sensitivities are, in in my opinion, not the root cause. They are a symptom of something else. And so if we chase elimination diets and chase food sensitivities, we're just going to spend a lot of time with really tedious food rules a lot of times those types of food rules is what landed our client in that burnout end of the spectrum in the first place. So we actually don't do a lot of elimination diets. We we actually haven't done food sensitivity tests in many years. As far as the tests that I could recommend, I'm not a fan of your kind of typical IgG food sensitivity test, which is like the ones that you'll see marketed on social media. Yeah. <laughs> I think like Everly Well is a common one. And the problem with that style of food sensitivity test is that it's essentially going to pick up the foods that you eat frequently. IgG production doesn't equate to reaction. It just means that your immune system saw it. So there's a lot of false positives with that kind of testing. And it usually means we've whittled it down to like three obscure foods that we can eat. And it's really hard to get ourselves in a nourished, low stress state with that kind of um, stringent rules around our food. But we did like MRT testing, so mediator release testing, when we were looking at this more often in our clients. And it's a different way of assessing food sensitivities that rules out the false positives because we're looking at um, inflammatory mediators actually released in response to food, not just the immune system seeing it. So it's kind of like a step further in that cascade from seeing the food and immune system tagging it to actually mounting an inappropriate response. Interesting. What do you do then? If somebody comes to you and says, I feel like I'm reacting to everything, do you just work on healing the underlying imbalances and, you know, physiology or, you know, what's your approach? Yeah. So we definitely will take a look at what's going on in the gut if that's the case, because there's typically some dysbiosis or some increased permeability that preceded the reactions to food. I'm really curious about like their histamine production and clearance in their body if they're having a lot of food reactions. And then again, curious about the nervous system too. Um, And we, of course, will ask, you know, do we have foods where we have known reactions to them? Foods that even if you're not having a known reaction, it's creating so much fear in you when you eat it that we're jeopardizing digestion because our nervous system is all hyped up and Mm -hmm. hypervigilant. We will definitely have those out in the beginning. There's no need to add insult to injury if we know symptoms are coming from it. But the end goal would be addressing the gut so that we know that there's no um, manifestation of inappropriate food reactions from that perspective, working on the nervous system, and then slowly bringing those foods back in um, and working on the way that we clear histamine from the body too. So I say that simply, but I want to be clear that that's not always a simple or quick process. It takes time to do that and it takes time to let go of that fear response we have to foods that have been causing symptoms. Um, but yeah, we don't 
we don't do like set elimination protocols for you know all clients when they come in. It's just kind of based on how they're reporting responses to foods. Got it. This is from Nicole. She says, what's a, the best nutrition plan for autoimmune disease and how to eat to keep your m- metabolism revved up with autoimmune conditions? She also has a second question, but I'll let you do that one first. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, this is going to look pretty similar to our basic nutrition recommendation where we're eating enough, eating for blood sugar balance and sticking to primarily like whole foods and, cl- and as close to their natural form as possible. The only thing that might change with autoimmune disease, depending on the type, is we may pull things like gluten and dairy out at least initially to see how it impacts markers in your lab work. With things like um, Hashimoto's, which is a really common uh, uh, autoimmune thyroid condition we see in our practice, there's some decent evidence that removing gluten or potentially removing dairy will bring thyroid antibodies down. So we might do that and that would be a little bit different. And then keeping metabolism revved up with autoimmune disease would be kind of the same way. So eating enough protein throughout the day, eating enough overall to support that basic metabolic need, incorporating some strength training, working on stress and sleeping enough. Yeah. She also says, does eating in the evening cause weight gain if overall Mm -hmm. calories are in range? This is another bro science thing where it's like, don't (laughs) eat after 7 p.m. So Mm -hmm. does it actually matter? No, I don't think so. I the only place I get a little caught up on is when we look at like the circadian rhythm and when we're really primed to digest food well and handle um, blood sugar well is usually during sunlight hours. So I think late eating like super late at night versus having dinner at like a typical dinner time while the sun is still up may have some implications from a blood sugar stability standpoint, but I'm a big fan of bedtime snacks to help support good blood sugar throughout the night and waking up with good blood blood sugar. So I don't have strict, like, don't, don't even look in the pantry after 7 PM type rules, but I would say having your main meals ideally during like daylight hours is going to be the best from a circadian rhythm perspective. Granted, Mm -hmm. we're recording this in the winter when that might be a little challenging. The sun sets kind of early. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That is hard when it sets at like 430. It's it's a problem. Is the worst. <laughs> yeah. All right. This is from Non Diet RN. She said, I'd love to know if it's possible to take a healthy approach towards weight loss. Is weight loss as a goal bad? Is there a way that it isn't? I've been an intuit- intuitive eating coach for eight years now and obviously have clients who want to lose weight, but everything I've been taught says that it's a no no to have a goal, to have as a goal. Mm-hmm. And isn't even necessary to focus on and instead focus on the habits you're creating, which I still agree with that. But I guess I would love a conversation about the nuance of it and even how you approach it with your clients while also being mindful of body image, et cetera. Mm. Yeah, this is a really good question. And um, I think that it is possible to approach this from like a healthy and metabolically responsible perspective. And I know you and I were talking about this a little before we started recording, but this like black and white thinking of like, we either are hardcore into the dieting and wanting to lose weight, or we can't ever think of that as a reasonable goal, I think creates the same kind of disconnect as, as the other side does. So deeming that type of a goal as bad, I think is a problem just as much as focusing only on that as a goal and ignoring the health stuff is too. So you know, as always, I think health lies somewhere in the middle. And if weight loss or changing your body composition is a goal of yours, that's not inherently bad. I think what matters is the reasons behind it. Um, Is it an appropriate season to be addressing a goal like this? And then how are we going about doing that? 
Yeah. I think that's wise. Um, I, it's, it's really, I think it's a challenge because I, I do believe a lot of women who are in this phase of life, the millennial women, we grew up, we had those underlying ideas that, you know, we needed to be smaller and that's what health was. Health was being smaller. Health was losing weight as opposed to, you know, health is about how you feel and what you can do and what your goals are personally and like being able to live your best life, you know, as cliche as it is. (laughs) And so a lot of us have kind of gotten out of that phase. I think maturity does wonderful things, but also the internet has changed. People's perspectives have changed. Body and how people are talking about health has changed, which is awesome. It's been Mm -hmm. a whirlwind the last 10 years. (laughs) But I don't think that I think you're doing people a huge disservice to tell them, no, you shouldn't have a weight loss goal because all we're doing at the end of the day is creating more shame. Oh, I feel bad. I shouldn't have this this weight loss goal. I shouldn't want to change my body. There's really nothing wrong, actually, with wanting to change your body. And that may like tick some people off, but there's nothing wrong with it. If you want more muscle, like I'm Mm -hmm. proactively right now trying to gain more muscle. I want Mm -hmm. more definition. And so if that's a desire of mine, the goal is not for me, the pursuit of it is not I I'm going to uh, it's it's not going to be a detriment to my health. I'm not going to pursue it and say, I want this look at all costs. This is what makes me worthy. And this is what I yeah. want. And this is, you know, I, I want people to accept me and love me. And mm-hmm. because I'm thin and, I, you know, I can't I can't I'm not worthy unless I am like it's not like that anymore. Right. It's a different if it's, it's a different way. At the end of the day, I'm still going to do all the same things, whether or not I actually get more muscle or get the definition that I want. I still feel great. And I'm letting those markers, the markers that matter. So what's my fatigue like? What's my sleep doing? How do I feel? How do I get to interact with my kids? Am I present? Am I, you know, my do I have good mental clarity? All that stuff matters way more. But as long as we have the proper, I I don't want to say like ideals, but the, you know, we we know we're coming from. A healthy place with it mm-hmm. and we're mentally and emotionally in a healthy place with it i don't think it's something that we should be shaming people over i i think as a coach recognizing somebody's desires is huge mm-hmm. right and i mean i'm sure you see this in your practice people come to you and they want something and they don't want to feel invalidated for that Right. And a lot of women do want to get back to as bad as, you know, as much as I used to harp on that. Oh, you don't need to get your body back. A lot of people do. You know, we've been through a lot. Women have been through a lot. We've had children. We're stressed. We're going through careers and demands and 2020 and all that stuff. And so wanting to kind of refocus and feel yourself again is really, really important. And I think we need to validate that for sure and show women, which I'm sure you do this in your practice, but show women how can we pursue health and really recognize those those biomarkers that matter and mm-hmm. you know and matter so much for our for the long term, not just now, but in our 50s, 60s, and 70s too. How can we really focus on that and and make sure that we're like kicking butt at 70? But also recognize like, hey, you may lose a little bit of weight or you may gain muscle as a result of some of these changes. And if you're if that's part of your goal, too, like that's that's okay too. I am so excited to announce that subscriptions are available on my favorite digestive enzyme ever. It has completely changed my digestion. I take it every single day. 
And now through February 1st, 2024, you can actually subscribe for two bottles every three months at 20% off. And if you're listening to this after February 1st, you can still sign up for a subscription. It'll be 15% off. Let me tell you why this has changed my life. I found something called Digestive Complex. It has a blend of 10 different enzymes, including lactase to help with dairy and protease for protein digestion, and a blend of herbs like licorice and marshmallow root, which are calming for the stomach. It also has hydrochloric acid, which is often suppressed when we're stressed. I randomly just get digestive issues occasionally, especially if I'm traveling or eating out. And I also notice it when I'm upping my protein intake or I tend to have a higher protein day. And so taking these digestive enzymes specifically at dinner when I tend to eat a lot of protein has made such a huge difference. I am not exaggerating when I tell you it's completely changed my digestion. Digestive Complex is a synergistic formula that provides support for healthy digestion and relief from occasional discomforts such as gas, bloating, and indigestion. I think just about everyone should have a bottle on hand to proactively help your body digest food especially if you're dealing with a chronic condition or you're under stress or going through a season of stress. I also find that it's really important a lot of people are deficient in nutrients. And when you bring in a digestive enzyme, you're allowing your body to digest nutrients better. So you're absorbing your nutrients better and you're at a lower risk of experiencing a deficiency. For a limited time, you can get 10% off Digestive Complex. Go to mdlogichealth.com forward slash digestive. Again, that's mdlogichealth.com forward slash digestive. Use code WELLFED for 10% off or sign up for a subscription like me. You can get two bottles every three months for 20% off for the life of the subscription as long as you have it. As long as you sign up before February 1st, if you're listening to this after February 1st, no problem. Sign up for a subscription and you'll get 15% off. I feel like we need markers that matter on like a slogan or a t-shirt yes, or something. That I was like a, that. Really, a really good way to say it because I think that in, in is like the best summary of what we're trying to explain here. It's yeah. what are we tracking as success? And if the only metric of success is weight lost or looking a certain way, that typically doesn't lead us to where we want to go, even though we think that that's going to be it. And, you know, speaking from personal experience and like previous lifetimes is what it feels like. Um, you can attain certain aesthetic goals, but it's at the cost of those other markers typically. Um, yes, and right. yeah. And maybe the body composition goals that you have are to enable you to show up the way you want to for your family and your kids and be able to, you know, pursue uh, this hike that you wanted to go on or various things in your life. And I think that that's a totally reputable thing when you're setting yourself up for success for the next decades, not just today. Yeah. This is from Shaw Plays. She, sa- she says, how can you reduce swelling and or edema in the lower legs and probably everywhere? I feel really puffy. And I think we had mm-hmm. another kind of random question about, I, you know, how do I eat in order to reduce swelling or water retention overall? Yeah. So I think there's a couple things to think about with this. Um, We've mentioned minerals a bunch, but we see this a lot with our clients. Minerals are going to influence uh, fluid retention and fluid crossing across cellular membranes. So we find in really mineral depleted or really mineral imbalanced clients, they're a lot more prone to puffiness or fluid retention. And maybe you've even felt this. If If you typically eat 
pretty low sodium, which is, this is another like millennial woman thing. We all grew up with this salt fear. (laughs) And then you go out to a restaurant where they use a lot more sodium. And then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, my rings are tight or Mm -hmm. I've got this line where my socks are. Um, that is a good example of the influence of minerals on, on puffiness and fluid retention. And so it feels once again, really counterintuitive, but typically getting a little bit more salt in your day-to-day life, getting enough potassium to balance that salt goes such a long way with puffiness. Um, and then when you do go out to eat, for example, or eat something that's a little bit higher sodium, you don't have that exaggerated response because your baseline isn't so low. So that would be one piece of it. The other I'm just thinking, which this is not my area of expertise, but I'd be curious about like lymph flow and lymphatic drainage. And I think again, I'll like modern millennial women, we wear so much tight clothing, or at least we did. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm out of that phase of my life right now, but um, just like super tight yoga pants at all times or skinny jeans and things that are really inhibiting lymph flow. And this does not have a heart the way our circulatory system does. So it relies on like your muscle contractions to move lymph back up. So she mentioned specifically lower legs. So I'm thinking gravity of either sitting or standing all day and not getting that like muscle pump or it being inhibited by really tight clothing being some options. So I'd be thinking like legs up the wall. Can we break mm-hmm. up needed time? Can we do some like little ankle stretches and calf um calf raises just to get that pumped back up for you um, if it's lower legs specifically. You know, you, you said something that was really made me start thinking how millennials <laughs> always wear tight clothes. You don't, you don't, it's not like you don't think there's anything else besides that. It's, it's so interesting growing up because you, <laughs> you really, you think that this is what the world does and is, and then you grow up and you're like, why did we do that? No, but like right. they're not. So why did we, the skinny jeans, the side parts, the tight, tight sports bras, the tight leggings. And I mean, leggings have a place and skinny jeans and side parts right. have a place, yeah. but it was like, that's all we did. You know, mm-hmm. it was like leggings and skinny jeans. And even like, I'm just thinking back to the bras that I wore. We always had like tight bras, tight sports uh-huh. bras. Now everything is so much looser and yep. more casual and baggy like how yep. what a shift <laughs> yes. 10 years made literally went from suction tight to like baggy back to like the grunge that we thought I was know. like not cool so yeah. um <laughs> it, it it's wild to think about that and from a lymphatic drainage perspective wow mm. i didn't think about that it is crazy to think about what that does to you over the course of many many years when you're wearing such tight clothes and also um, workout gear, like when you're working out for it to be so compressive. So for sure. Wow. So let's uh, with our last 10 or 15 minutes here, let's jump into nutrition. This was a kind of an overall general question, which I love. This is from Stacy. She says, when it comes to nutrition, what is one thing to change? One thing to start doing and one thing to stop doing for better health. Mm. That is a really good question. I'm like, just one thing. I know, I know. (laughs) Um, Let's see. So I think the biggest thing that improves nutrition is eating in a way that you enjoy. So getting back to like rules that come internally versus externally. I think we've talked about that quite a bit kind of in the context of other questions, but thinking about what foods do you like? What did you grow up eating? What What's an important family recipe? What do you enjoy cooking? Um, rather than like a list of healthy foods, I'd start with things that you enjoy. Um, and I just 
from experience in working with clients, we digest food better when we are in a state of appreciating that food and enjoying it versus choking down something that we think is healthy or think that we need. So I think that would be one thing I'd say to change. Can we bring more joy into your nutrition? I love that. Um, One thing to start. I would say sticking to foods in as close to their natural form as possible would be an important change here. And, you know, we live in modern times with modern conveniences. So this has gotten a little bit more gray over our lifetimes, but food is information for our cells and it's energy for our metabolism and our body's designed to digest things that it recognizes. So if we stick to like proteins that haven't been heavily processed and manufactured in a lab somewhere and refined into this nice powder, we're going to have an easier time breaking that down. And it's going to come with a wide variety of um, like supportive nutrients with that too. So I'd be thinking, can we start really focusing on whole foods as much as possible, like single ingredient recognizable foods um, and then stop. I'd say let's stop with the the like really fiber packed processed health stuff that's out there. This has been top of mind with a couple of clients recently because, and I love the taste of them, but have you had those Olipop sodas? You know, those like gut health sodas? I am not a fan. So, okay, good. I'm glad we're on the same page. I like the taste. I see. I don't. I can't do. Oh. I can't do any of those things. But people are obsessed. They're obsessed because yeah. it's labeled to be healthy. It says gut health, but there's like an obscene amount of fiber packed into that. And it's not just this brand. There's a lot of them, and there's a lot of like bars like this and cereals like yeah, this. Fiber One cereal. Uh, yeah, that was my fave. So, yeah, I know. I had we had a season <laughs> like tree bark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tree bark, and it's so much fiber. And then we're we have the audacity to wonder why we're bloated when we've put this fiber bomb in our system and we're just creating a lot of work for digestion. And I think that's been one big shift in the health and nutrition space that I've noticed from like these complicated fiber uh, added, like just intense health foods to things that are just easy to digest. Like how about we just eat fruit? Why do we need something that's like so manufactured and um, just stopping things that are so hard to break down just because they look like they're healthier. They say they are. Yeah. Totally agree. Okay, this is from Amantheo. Amantha, Amantha Yo. Amantha Yo. Duh. Okay, now I got it. <laughs> How do we know if we have a slow slash normal slash optimal metabolism? Man, we talk about metabolism all the time, but how do we yeah. actually know that's the thing? Yeah. This is actually like such a hot button point for me because I feel like so many people make assumptions because they say it. They're like, well, Mm -hmm. they say, and they say, and this is what it is. And this is what's, this is what's causing me problems. And I'm like, but do you know that? Like, do you have actual evidence? (laughs) And um, because it's something that they heard on the internet. And so Mm. talk to me about how do we actually know if our metabolism is slow and if that's the problem? Yeah. Really good question. Maybe we should have even started there with our yeah, yeah. explanation of metabolism, but yeah. So, okay. So some, some signs to watch out for that would indicate a slower metabolism. One would be lower energy, like lower than your norm. Another would be feeling cold. Like you, maybe you're the friend that's like always bum- bundled up and everybody else is in short sleeves. Um, you might notice this body wide or just hands and feet this is speaking to like the thyroid side of the metabolism. Yeah. You typically notice that things heal slowly. So if you get like a scratch or a paper cut or something, it's just like chilling on your hand for a week or two when normally Mm -hmm. it would be a couple of days. 
You might notice that hair and nails are more brittle or you might losing that might be losing that more frequently. Weight loss resistance would be another clue. So maybe you haven't changed anything with diet or exercise and now you're either gaining weight or just not responding to those interventions the way that you did in the past. And then just brain fog. So we think of, you know, metabolism as that rate of energy production in the body. So there really isn't anything that isn't influenced by energy unavailability. So just feeling like your brain's moving like slower, like you're walk, kind of walking through molasses a bit. Hmm. Yeah, I like that a lot. Okay, this is from Emily Lemons. She says, I have undereaten for years. Can I reverse the harm I've done to my metabolism? I now have PCOS and have gained weight. She also says, should everybody be gluten-free? I feel better when I eat it, but I also th- think I may just need more carbs. So talk mm-hmm. to me about reversing, quote-unquote, you know, the the damage that you've done to your metabolism and what, you know, what's the deal with that? Yes. So you absolutely can reverse that harm. Same conversation we had about progesterone. Like, I don't think we do irreparable damage. We can decide that we're going to move things in the other direction. And the body is incredibly resilient. So even after years or decades of under eating, there's still things that we can do about this. And we are just gradually introducing consistent nourishment, helping the body realize that this isn't just for one weekend that we're eating enough, this is a long-term expectation that there'll be enough energy around. And then slowly things like the thyroid and sex hormone production can normalize once we let that guard down. Um, Generally speaking, the more severe the restriction was or the longer the restriction was, the longer you can expect this process to take. Um, So if you've been dieting or under eating for years and years, we can't expect this to normalize in three months. Right. Um, so having realistic expectations for it. Yeah. Do you think everybody should be gluten-free? She says, I feel better when yeah. I eat it, but I also think I may just need more carbs. Yeah. I don't think everybody needs to be gluten-free. If you feel good when you eat it, that's generally a good sign. I think that there, especially in the US versus places like Europe, there's been some changes to wheat here that might make it harder to digest. And it's more of a like, exposure to some different compounds versus the gluten itself that could be causing some problems. Um, We do have clients that do better with things like sourdough or fermented gluten options just from a digestive perspective. But there are certainly people that do have problems with gluten too. So we don't have this black or white in our practice. It's not an automatic removal, but we are looking for feedback from you in terms of how you feel when you eat it and when you don't and looking at certain lab data for it as well. So if you're feeling better when you eat it, that's good. You may have also clued yourself into just needing some more carbs. So I would just do some more experimenting about that. Bring in some non-gluten carbs and just see to get that same beneficial impact from it. Or is it specific to gluten? Yeah. I think a lot of people struggle with the removal of things because they don't bring things in to replace that removal. And now there is a lot of, you know, I think there's a, a lot of good. So like, for example, if you are wondering if dairy is impacting you, you can bring in coconut plain coconut yogurt so that you still have that same experience and you're still getting the probiotics, but you're, you're still eliminating the dairy. It's when we remove the the yogurt and we're like, what do I have for a snack? You know, we try to do something completely different and it becomes really hard to maintain. So with those small little shifts like that, I think potatoes and rice and, you know, apparently I like potatoes and rice, but, um, you know, other, yeah. Other carbohydrates, kind of bringing those in more intentionally in place of the gluten, even if it is like your own whatever, you know, something you've baked. 
I think that that would make a huge difference. So, yeah. So this is from Marley. She says, thoughts on hair tissue mineral analysis tests. Have Mm. you done one? So talk to me about what role that plays in your practice and how you, what do you think about it? We love HTMA tests in, in our practice. We were really hesitant to bring those in because I think, I don't know if it was just like the dietetic schooling or maybe if everybody had kind of a bad taste in their mouth about HTMA tests for really? a while about their validity. And if you go back to that, there's like one or two really poorly designed studies that really looked at like one subject. So kind of classic when you go back into the literature for some of our long held beliefs in the nutrition space. But we use HTMA tests on every single client. It's the only lab that we automatically do because it's so cost effective. It's giving us insight into the last three months, not just today. And it's telling us about the state of the nervous system and metabolism, how well we're able to utilize things like thyroid hormone. We get clues about blood sugar stability from it as well. Um, and even just adrenal function and resilience to stress. So bang for your buck wise, it doesn't get better than HTMA testing. And it had been that missing link for trying to explain why certain clients improve really quickly and others don't. If oh. we're really minerally depleted, we're going to have slow progress because minerals run our enzymes and our enzymes create our hormones. So working on minerals kind of first and foremost is our general approach with our clients. Oh, very cool. Okay, let's see. This is again from Shopplay. She says, can whey protein powder be helpful even if I'm not weightlifting? So talking a lot, we're talking a lot about protein lately and mm-hmm. a lot of people want to use protein powder, but is that something you can use even if you're not, you know, lifting weights? Yeah, totally. If you like it, you feel good with it and it's helping you get more protein, then awesome. I think the only thing, the only caveat here is we want to avoid having like protein powders be our only source of protein throughout the day. Right. Um, like they taste good. Uh, they're sweet. And if you're not crazy about meat, I can see where that would be kind of a more fun addition. But I think it's important to be getting the whole foods in addition to some of the more processed powders. But yeah, weightlifting is not a requirement for using whey. Yeah. And I actually just saw a study. It wasn't, I mean, I guess it was is recent, but they looked at women and their muscle mass, older women in particular, and they found that just by increasing their protein intake, they were able to maintain and actually build muscle even when weightlifting was not cool. not not a, a factor, which I thought was that's nuts. <laughs> yeah. It's really cool because it's, it's, it's great news. It's great news, but it, it really does illuminate the fact of that I think most women in general, especially aging women, are not eating enough protein. I mean, that's pretty clear in the literature that increasing or maintaining, well, we do need to increase our protein intake because of muscle protein synthesis declines as we age, but those who increase their protein intake actually have much less complications that are common of aging, like falling and instability and not having functional independence. And people who have higher protein intakes actually maintain that functional independence. So I think it's, it's actually really profound, but yeah. Totally. Okay. Last one. Talk to me about berberine. Okay. So this Mm -hmm. is from Sarah. And I've seen a lot of people say it's nature's ozempic, which I I actually am not an ozempic or peptide therapy hater at all. I think if you want to use peptides, fine. But people are really on berberine. So what is that about? People really are talking about it. I guess it's cool. Everything has its moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Berberine is a plant compound. It's a really like widely used supplement for a lot of different things. So okay. um, I think the biggest reason why it's in the in the Instagram world right now is just that it's 
influence on insulin sensitivity and blood sugar regulation, which is where this would have some overlap with Ozempic because of the way it acts in the body. Berberine's used a lot in conditions like PCOS, where insulin resistance is an issue. It's used a lot in um, like gut health protocols because it's actually an antimicrobial. So it can help adjust imbalances in the gut microbiome. So those are the two main ways that we use it in practice. So blood sugar or stuff with the gut. Okay. Um, and I think so if somebody has PCOS, cool, are you are you recommending that they take berberine? Typically, as long as it is truly the insulin resistant variety of PCOS. And there's at least one study in PCOS specifically looking at metformin versus berberine versus the combination. And berberine performed as well as metformin without the GI side wow. effects, which is really cool. Yeah, that's incredible. Okay, cool. What are you working on now? Tell me, I'm sure a lot of people are going to want to know about your practice and are you taking clients? Because I feel like so many people are not that like, no, I'm full. So talk to me about your practice and what you're doing and where people can find more about you. Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram. It's at Kaylee RD. My name's spelled weird. It's K-A-E-L-Y RD. My website's the same. So on Instagram, you can find a lot of just free educating and then info on how to work with my team and I. So we do work one-on-one with clients. We do still have an open private practice. I think the biggest change was just expanding to a team setup versus just being me, especially as I get ready for like my first maternity leave and what, what that will look like. We really have just a wonderful, wonderful team, similar philosophies, but even just they're just better at it than I am. So we serve clients in a one-on-one capacity. In like two weeks, we're finally going to have our course out, which is the DIY version of our typical like foundational approach to hormone balance. Love that. Great. I'm excited. That's been, it's been a slow process, but it's almost there. What's it called? It'll be Happy Hormone Foundations. Okay. It's just, um, yeah, a self-paced version of our typical process with our clients, which will be really fun. And then the other part of the business is I mentor practitioners, particularly nutrition practitioners that want to use functional testing in practice and learn how to really be confident and efficient at that. So you'll find all of that on the website. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for taking the time to answer all of these questions. I appreciate you and I'm excited for you and all all that you have coming up, though. I think the online course is just brilliant. And I I love it when people take their practice and they actually put it in a Mm. self-paced, product-based way that people can have the help without having to like work one-on-one with people. So I'm sure that's going to be so valuable. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. These questions are great. So thanks to your audience. (laughs) I agree. Okay. For more from Kaylee, it's KayleeRD.com. K-A-E-L-Y-R-D.com. For more from me, coconutsandkettlebells.com. Thanks for being here, guys. And thank you for sending such good questions. We will talk to you next week. Bye.